Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. I have another special episode for you while I'm away in Istanbul. The next narrative episode is ready to go, though, and will be with you next week. Today, we talk to Professor Barry Strauss about his new book, Ten Caesars, and his podcast, Antiquitas. Ten Caesars is a popular history of Roman emperors from Augustus to Constantine, and in the interview, he will explain how and why he chose his ten. And then I quiz him about Diocletian and Constantine, the two emperors who contributed most directly to life in Byzantium. I was very interested in his answers, and it makes me want to study that period at some point in the future. Antiquitas is a new podcast where Professor Strauss shares his thoughts on famous figures from the ancient world. Season 1 covers an array of famous Greek and Roman generals, and Season 2 zeroes in on the death of Julius Caesar. Uh, Barry Strauss is Professor of History and Classics at Cornell University, and he's written five other books on Greco-Roman subjects, with a particular focus on leadership. You can check out those and find more at barrystrauss.com, and I've put up a quick YouTube video at thehistoryofbyzantium.com about the Ten Caesars book. You can, of course, find Antiquitas wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's the interview. Professor Strauss, welcome to the History of Byzantium. Thank you, Robin. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for coming on the show. So, before we talk about your book, Ten Caesars, which is sort of prompted us getting together today. Let's talk about your podcast, which is very exciting, as not too many academic historians have yet moved into the medium. And your show is the wonderfully named Antiquitas. Can I ask what drew you into the world of podcasting? And can you tell the listeners about the theme of the show and some of the subjects you cover? Well, thanks. I, I, I love talking and I love lecturing. And so podcasting seemed like a natural challenge to me as a way to try to get some of the message out that I give to my students in classes. In fact, as I discovered when I started podcasting, it wasn't quite that simple. And it's a different medium, a different genre, and you can't simply take your lectures and, and record them. But, but I've, really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed the challenge. Um, I wanted to, um, in the beginning, uh, introduce listeners to some of the people in ancient warfare in Greek Greek and Roman warfare that I talk about in my in my classes, uh, and then I I did a second season on the death of Caesar, a shorter season on the death of Caesar, which recapped um, some of the material from my book I wrote same, on the same same title on, on the death of Caesar. Uh, for the first uh, season, it was just me talking, and for the second season, I had some guests. So I've mixed it up a bit and and have enjoyed the variety. Yeah, it's been really interesting that you've brought in other 
academics to talk about different aspects of the Julius Caesar story. Right. Um, so I definitely recommend that everybody goes and checks that out, and uh, I think they will enjoy the blend. Um, let's talk about your new book. Uh, you've given a hint there that this is not your first foray into writing about the Roman world. But this book is called Ten Caesars, and it covers ten of the most significant Roman emperors, starting with Augustus and closing with Constantine. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to write this book, and how did you narrow down the emperors to just the ten that you cover? Okay. Well, there are a number of things that um, uh, led me to write the book. Uh, first, I must confess that when I was a graduate student in the 1970s, um, that was the time when um, I saw uh, the wonderful um, uh, British production of I, Claudius, uh, which was a great hit on American TV, and a very different approach than the one that we had in graduate school, which was, of course, also a wonderful approach as well. But that one, in graduate school, we had a systems approach, and we looked at themes and trends and very much avoided looking at individuals, whereas I, Claudius was just the opposite. It's a gossipy uh, and fictionalized look at individuals in the Roman Empire. So always in the back of my mind was to want to go back to that subject and look at it in a scholarly way. Second, I, as, as a scholar, as a historian, I'm very interested in leadership and in narrative. Um, third, I, before this, I wrote a book on the death of Julius Caesar. So it was uh, natural to continue Uh, with the Roman Empire. And fourth, and probably most important, I think the Roman Empire is a tale for our times uh, and a very important one to look at in an era uh, of great change, great challenge for Western societies, um, partly because of immigration um, and uh, the question of how to welcome newcomers and how how they should be assimilated. Uh, And secondly, because of challenges abroad from rising powers, uh, particularly China, uh, but also Russia and uh, the Islamic world, uh, which create challenges for established powers like the United States and NATO. Um, And I think that the situation in Rome is a very distant mirror from which we can learn. So those are all the things that drew me to write the book. Very good. And did those 10 particular emperors stand out or did you have to leave anybody out that you would like to Uh, have covered yes great question so i would say that five of them chose me rather than me choosing choosing them um augustus one has to start with either julius caesar or augustus and i chose augustus for perhaps a not very good reason that i had written two books about julius caesar and thought it was time to move on uh constantine struck me as a a natural because if Augustus is the founder of the empire, Constantine in a way is the second founder uh, as the uh, the first Christian emperor and the man who who founds Constantinople, a city that had um, many great years ahead of it, as you know well. Um, I could have taken the story beyond Constantine, but the later empire, later on empire, it's a really very, very different story and very different uh, beast than Uh, the empire up to that period. Uh, Also, it would have made it more difficult to choose 10 if I had gone on further. Uh, I also felt that uh, Hadrian was absolutely essential 
not just because he comes chronologically between Augustus and Constantine as he does, but because thematically um, he uh, represents a turn to the east as Constantine would, but also continue, continues to be rooted in the west uh, as, as Augustus was. Um, another emperor who was an absolute must is Marcus Aurelius. Um, Marcus Aurelius's meditations have become a bestseller again uh, and are very popular with business audiences. So it seemed to me if I was going to write for a popular audience, I had to do Marcus Aurelius. And finally, my informal survey of people who were not classicists showed me that there was one Roman emperor and only one that everyone had heard of, and that's Nero. So I had to do Nero. So that's five out of the ten. How did I choose uh, the others? Tiberius is not my favorite emperor, and that was the most difficult one to write, uh, but I Came, became convinced that he's really essential because the real test of a system is not the founder, but the successor, the person who comes afterwards. Uh, the ability to pass August, Augustus's empire on to Tiberius and for Tiberius to make it work, um, that's when we first knew that Augustus's new dispensation was actually going to work and that the Principate would survive. So I think Tiberius is a very important person also because he really is the key figure in deciding that Rome, by and large, would no longer be an expanding power, but rather it would be a satiated power, it would be an administrative and bureaucratic empire rather than a conquering empire. Vespasian, I think, is a fascinating figure because he is the first non-nobleman to rule the empire, and, or at least to make his rule stick. Um, so he represents a new kind of Roman empire, emperor, and he himself is also um, quite fascinating. Uh, I found in that way um, many, many interesting things about him. He's also the man behind the Colosseum, which is, after all, the iconic Roman monument. Trajan, um, I did not expect to be fascinated by Trajan, but I was in the end. Uh, he appealed to me as the person who the Romans thought of as the best of the emperors, and it wasn't immediately obvious to me that that was true. But I wanted to see why that was the case and what it was about Trajan that so interested the Romans. It was also a challenge because we don't have a good ancient biography of Trajan, or even a bad ancient biography of Trajan. So really interesting challenge to reconstruct him. Um, the next one who was a matter of choice was Septimius uh, Severus. Um, and he's a fascinating figure, I think, because he was so violent uh, and uh, he established a new dynasty with civil war, but also because he's out of Africa. He's the first African emperor, and he represents even more than Trajan and Hadrian, who came from Spain, do uh, the ability of the empire to expand and to absorb uh, outsiders. And he married a Syrian woman, Julia Domna, and she is also part of the fascination for me of studying uh, Septimius. Also, Gibbon thought that Septimius, more than anyone else, began the decline of the empire. So I wanted to look at that. Diocletian, I've always found Diocletian just an utterly fascinating figure. Such a combination of a thug, uh, but a brilliant and creative statesman uh, who does uh, more than anyone else, to end the crisis of the third century and to lay the foundations for something new. So those are, those are my 10. And there was at least one who I had to leave behind with great reluctance, and that was Aurelian. Uh, Aurelian 
reigned for only five years, but he accomplished uh, a great deal. Um, he too had a great vision for ending the crisis. He establishes the new religion of the sun, which is a, a forerunner of Christianity in a way. Uh, he builds the walls around Rome, uh, which we still see today. And his uh, confrontation with Zenobia uh, is uh, an irresistible story. And finally, there is the role of his wife and widow. So I was very sorry to have to leave him on the cutting room floor. Fantastic. So that gives uh, gives the listeners a very good idea of uh, what's featured in the book. And you've segued nicely because I'd like to quiz you about your final two Caesars um, right. because of their relevance to our story on the history of Byzantium. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Diocletian plays this huge role in preventing the crisis of the third century from destroying the empire and his legacy is an interesting one um could you briefly remind the listeners of some of the things he was able to accomplish some of his reforms and then we'll sort of talk about his legacy a bit more right so diocletian was a military man who rose in the roman army and for him the army was always central he devotes the first part of his reign to um re-establishing the borders uh, to putting down rebellions in the West and Gaul and in Britain uh, and in and to fighting on the Danube frontier as well. And in particular, to avenging Rome's defeats at the hands of the Sasanian Persians, to defeating the Sasanians and to extracting a treaty from them that actually lasts for 40 years. But he's better known for his governmental reforms. And first and foremost is he establishes what we called today, though they didn't in antiquity, the Tetrarchy, the system of four rulers. So not only does he take a colleague as emperor, he's not the first man to do that, but he also gives uh, each of the two emperors, each of the two Augusti, as he calls them, a helper, a Caesar, as he calls them. So he rules in the east primarily. His capital is the city of Nicomedia, which is outside of modern Istanbul. In the West, his colleague uh, Maximius rules from Milan. And in the East, Diocletian has as his helper Galerius. And in the West, Maximius has as his helper uh, Constantius. So there are four men working on the frontier, stabilizing the empire. It's Constantius, for instance, who puts down the revolt of Britain, Britannia, brings it back into the empire. Galerius, who defeats the Persians on the Eastern Front. Diocletian makes it clear that he is the top ruler and that uh, in the case of any disputes, he will have the final say. Um, And he um, gives himself, he attaches himself to the god Jupiter. He calls himself Jovius, or as he calls uh, uh, Maximius, uh, he calls him uh, Herculius. Uh, so Hercules is the son of Jupiter, so making it clear that Diocletian is uh, the first person. Some other things that Diocletian does that's so important is not clear whether he makes the army bigger, but he uh, changes the army so that uh, he increases the number of cavalry units. This is building on reforms of some of his predecessors. 
He makes a clear distinction between border troops and a field army, a, a field army that is mobile and can move from place to place. And he built a series of new, smaller, uh, but um, bigger, stronger fortresses along the borders, east and west. Um, his policy is less one of fixed border frontier defense uh, than rather uh, defense in depth and using the mobile armies uh, to fill in gaps uh, and to deal with challenges as necessary. Um, the army is more expensive than before. And to have to pay for this more expensive army, uh, he needs to raise taxes, which he does in a variety of ways. For one thing, he doubles the number of provinces and he groups the provinces into regional uh, units called dioceses, which uh, would, of course, still a term in the Christian church today. Uh, more and smaller provinces makes it easier to collect taxes because uh, a governor is in charge of a, sm a smaller group of people. It can surveil them um, more easily. Uh, he levies taxes on Italy, a place that had been tax-free up to then, and even on the Senate. Uh, up, and the senators had enjoyed a tax-free status up to them. Uh, uh, the other thing that Diocletian tries to do is to stabilize the currency. Rome had been suffering from enormous inflation. He's only partially successful in this he is able to stabilize silver currency, but not bronze or gold. Uh, and to some extent, the economy can function on barter, not making that a problem. But the one part of the economy that cannot function on barter is the military. Soldiers have to be paid in coin because they move from place to place because they're not growing crops. So uh, what Diocletian does is comes up with an experiment in wage and price control, the famous edict on wages and prices, uh, which is uh, quite impressive in its sweep. Uh, he puts controls on practically everything from camels to chickens, um, and it's a failure. It, it doesn't succeed in stemming inflation. Ultimately, that will uh, depend on his successor. The final thing that he does, which is more infamous than famous, is that he starts the great persecution of Christians. Previously, persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire had mostly been sporadic, local, by and large, the authorities had uh, been willing to wink and nod um, at Christianity, which they considered to be subversive in various ways and also atheistic because Christians did not recognize the Olympian gods and uh, did not uh, make sacrifices to the emperor. Uh, there had been a, a stronger persecution briefly in the 250s, and now Diocletian brings it back. He feels that the only way to secure the empire after 50 years of uh, tremendous civil war and defeats and disasters was to reestablish the peace of the gods. And the only way to make the gods happy uh, was to punish atheists, uh, and he thought that Christians were uh, the atheists of par excellence. So he, uh, particularly with the help of Galerius, uh, begins the persecution of Christians, closing churches, uh, forcing Christians to sacrifice on behalf of the emperor, emperor destroying holy books, uh, and those who do not sacrifice uh, risk martyrdom. And there are martyrs during uh, the period of the persecution. The persecution lasts sporadically uh, for 10 years until mercifully it's, it's called off. So that's 
pretty much an overview of Diocletian. Oh, no, there is one other thing I should say. Excuse me. The other thing that he does is that he greatly increases the symbols uh, and the reality of autocracy in the empire. Uh, the Senate under his predecessors in the previous decades had become less and less important. Um, military commands were taken away from the Senate. Uh, Diocletian continues this practice, although he does win over some senators by making them consuls again, uh, which had been taken away from them. But what he insists on is that he dresses and acts and insists on being treated like a autocrat. So he dresses in purple, wearing um, accessorizing jewels, uh, wearing the shoes of a king, insisted on being insisting on being called Dominus. So whereas previous emperors had more or less followed in the mode of Augustus, which was that the public face was one of merely being a first citizen and not a king at all, with Diocletian, there is an emphasis on grandeur and on power and on monarchy, something that the Romans had seen relatively little of before. Uh, and this becomes uh, an important part of uh, the rulership from then out, from then on. Yeah, I'm glad you've finished on that note because that ties Diocletian's rule very directly to the experience of emperors in Byzantine times. Yeah. But there's a contrast there which I find very interesting, and this is where I'm. I'd like to hear just your opinion, I suppose, having studied this period. Diocletian, as you say, tries to shore up imperial authority by emphasizing the power of right. the emperor. But right. he then makes this decision to return almost to a republican mode by saying emperors should resign. As, yes. if, as if the emperor, the king, the god is also just an office that right. men should voluntarily give up. And right. in your study of this period, do, do you find that idea of the tetrarchy and, and emperors having a term of office naive or could that system just have been reorganized and have succeeded somehow well you know that's a really interesting question i guess i see it rather differently uh, so diocletian is the first and only emperor to voluntarily resign um, and uh, what i think he is doing rather than saying i want to go back to the republic is he is trying to turn the reins of power over to his uh, colleague and son-in-law, Galerius, while he, Diocletian, is still alive and while he can um, pull strings behind the scenes. That's what I read it as. So um, uh, I think he wanted to make the way secure for, for Galerius. Uh, and he was afraid that if he waited Diocletian waited until he was dead, that Galerius would not have the power and authority to pull it off. So that's what I think was going on. Interesting. So in a way, uh, he expected future emperors not to necessarily <laughs> resign and be as self-sacrificial. He, 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 he knew that there would be civil wars and he thought this is the best way to avoid one right at the start. Yes, I, that's right. And, you know, he... He retires to a fortress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is, I think, really kind of interesting uh, with an arms factory in it. Uh, it's a statement. <laughs> <laughs> very, very interesting. Uh, 
Um, well, the man who proved him right in that sense was Constantine, yes. who, of course, then dismantled the Tetrarchy piece by piece. Right. I mean, I'm very interested by that that reading. So how do you read Constantine's decision then? Do you think he just reacts to circumstances by starting civil war after civil war? Or do you think his his ego, his desire for power was driving his decision making? Um, a really good question. I guess I'd say both and. Um, I think that usually, uh, at, clearly Constantine has a huge ego and a huge desire for power. Um, and uh, as soon as he can, uh, he is grabbing power. I'm not sure that he had a plan on day one that he would conquer the entire empire and get rid of any competition. Um, I expect that he took things step by step. Um, but Constantine is such an unusual figure because in addition to being a great general and a shrewd politician and the realist of realists, uh, he's also a very religious man and someone who has a huge sense of mission. And it may well be that having conquered the, the Western Empire um, and having made so much success in spreading the gospel and spreading Christianity in the West that he felt it was incumbent upon him uh, to do so in the East as well, if he could. After all, Licinius, the man who he shares power with, is a pagan and is tolerant of Christianity, but is not going to do for Christianity what Constantine um, could do. So I think it's difficult to know if that was his plan from day one, but it's also clear that he he accepts the mission with abandonment, shall we say? He doesn't think, ah, yes. I can't really do that. Interesting. It's, it's difficult with uh, Constantine to avoid the sense that he has this huge ego because he names all his children after himself or some version of his his father's name and then he founds a city yes. and names that after himself right. um if we move on then to the founding of constantinople yes how much do you think the choice of city was um a, a great visionary instinct for the future of the empire yeah. and how much is it just uh you know the most expedient site for a, a capital to be named after himself yeah it's a really great question and as you know we don't really know the answer uh but again with i think that there's a danger of underrating constantine and saying well you know most people most of the time just uh are putting out fires and can't uh can't impose a grand vision. But if there's anyone in history who has a grand vision, it's Constantine. I mean, I think we can make the same mistake with Augustus and underestimate the degree to which the man has a vision from very early on. Augustus says at the age of 19, we know it because it's in Cicero. He said he's in the forum, he points to the statue of Julius Caesar and he says, I want the same honors, the same powers as my father, my adoptive father had. That's at 19. Um, I would think that once Constantine, uh, that Constantine always has great ambition, and particularly once he becomes a Christian, he's really thinking about what is it going to take to remake the Roman Empire. So it's true that we can't prove that Constantine called Constantinople's New Rome, 
Uh, as you know, we don't have New Rome attested for about a 50 years after Constantine's death. But he certainly goes to great lengths to recreate Rome in this new city with a Senate, seven hills and circus. Um, and it's a Christian Rome. It's a Rome with um, and a forum, of course. And it, it's a Rome with with churches rather than temples. So I am certainly tempted to think that Constantine had a vision. Um, also, he spends virtually none of his life in Rome. When he wins the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, he's about 40, and the guys never set foot in Rome. Nor does he govern the Western Empire from Rome. As you know, he governs it mostly from Trier. So um, he's not a big fan of Rome. He does go back to Rome later on uh, for a visit. But it's, uh, it's of limited value to him. Limited value to him. So um, I'm tempted to go beyond, admittedly go beyond the evidence and to say that he did have a vision of his new city uh, being the greatest city. Well, I think that's great because I think people will see in the book that you have marshaled the evidence, but it's also nice to get a fresh perspective on, particularly on Diocletian and Constantine for um, the history of Byzantium listeners because of the influence both men had on our narrative. Indeed. I, I think we will uh, draw things to a close there. Mm-hmm. Um, I very much appreciate your time and those insights, which I think will draw people towards the book, 10 Caesars, and the podcast, Antiquitas. Um, Professor Strauss, thank you so much for coming on the show, and we wish you all the best with your future work. Thank you, Robin.